Well, good morning, Garden family. I just love being together as a family, love hearing our voices in worship, and love the fact that we are here together because of what Jesus Christ did for us, uh, and that uh, though we were broken and a mess, all of us in our own way, through the power of his grace, he's uh, given us eternal life that starts right now, and a spirit is present among us, and a spirit is creating a community of love that speaks to our world about God's heart for it. So, so good to be here. Thank you to all who are joining us uh, online this morning. Uh, I want to talk this morning um, as we celebrate Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and the events of that day about a church to die for. Now, in a day when many consider the church irrelevant and worthy of constant criticism, How does scripture address the question, what did Jesus think was a church to die for? Now, we may have our own list when we say, oh, that would be a church to die for. They would have this type of programming, or they would have, you know, the best softball team in the city, or, which I think we might. But uh, (laughs) what, you know, we have human priorities, and we say, well, that would be a church to die for. But scripture actually does inform us that Jesus died not only for individual salvation, but Jesus died to birth the church of the living God. And he had in his heart, and he still has in his will, a church to die for. Look at this image here. Why do we have mixed feelings about this incident. If you, uh, if you have been on a different planet, you might not know the background you know, of um, this picture, but uh, Chris Rock was uh, the MC of the Academy Awards this year, and sitting fairly close up front uh, was uh, the comedian Will Smith and his wife, Jada uh, Smith. And uh, Jada, if you uh, uh, didn't know this, she was actually, her head was shaven bald. And some say that whether Chris Rock knew or he didn't know, uh, she had shaven her head due to a medical condition. But, you know, in comedy, there are no boundaries, you know, uh, so it seemed. And uh, Chris Rock made a joke about her shaven head. Seemed like everybody was just sort of adjusting to an awkward moment when Will Smith actually got up from his chair, ascended the stage, walked up to Chris Rock, and then just (laughs) hit him upside the head. And on the one hand, you know, there is within us and within our culture a sense that this is what our society has come to. You know, there's no place for violence like this. But there is in many people a response that also says, I hope my spouse would do that for me. That there's something right about defending the dignity and honor and reputation of the person that you have united your life with. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like there's like a mixed response. It's like, no, civilized people should not do this. There's probably a better way to address this issue, but on the other hand, there is a sense of maybe it's about time 
that we defended our families, defended our marriages in a certain way. So how do we think Jesus feels when so many consider themselves authorized to criticize, insult, and mock his bride, the church? How do we think Jesus feels when so many consider themselves fully authorized by heaven and hell to criticize, insult, and mock his bride, the church? Is he sitting on the throne of the realm of heaven, having a little bit of a Will Smith indecision moment on what to do? Is he really cheering on those who, in the name of prophecy, mock the one he loved and died for to create? Or do we not realize how much Jesus has made himself one with us, his bride? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. How many of you would say marriage is a mystery? I would agree with the apostle. A profound mystery to try to make two one. But Paul then goes on and says, this is true in the natural realm, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. Jesus left the realm of his father to come and seek us, his bride. And he says, no matter how messed up and dysfunctional and, and full of problems, I found her. I have now become one with her. And this is a profound mystery. See, you don't have to actually convince very much that all church members are human. And I need even less convincing that all church leaders are very, very, very human. I don't know how this is, you know, our marketing and membership team feel about this, but oftentimes when I meet someone who's new to our church, go have a cup of coffee with them, I'll, I'll tell them, there's one promise I can make you that I know I will keep. And that is, I will let you down at some point. I probably won't mean to, but I know it's going to happen. Because there's just no use trying to pretend like we're perfect, right? We are very, very humans, human, and humans all make mistakes. Humans all sin. No one is above accountability. And we really try to emphasize here at the garden that in our humanity, it's not an excuse. Our humanity calls for transparency, and that's part of how we have integrity. We own up to the fact that we're all works in progress. 
improvement is needed. Amen? But at the same time, to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, is like telling someone, I love you, but I hate your spouse. If you can imagine that happening to you, I love you, but I hate your spouse. I love you, but I hate your kid. What do you think that does relationally at that moment between you and the person who's saying that? And as people who are in a relationship, as people who are married, you probably know more about your spouse's weaknesses and they about yours than any other human being on the planet. Very few people are going to give you a lot of insight. As a parent, you know more about your kids' issues than anybody else, and they know more about yours. So how do we honestly face the human struggle within the body of Christ and yet not dis disrespect the bride of Christ in a way that offends the bridegroom? I believe Jesus shows us the process in this story of Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus begins the final stage of his journey for our salvation he goes into the temple of Jerusalem. He overturns the tables of the money changers. And then he resets the priorities of the sacred place. He says, this is a house of prayer. He says, this is a house of healing. And he says, this is a home for children offering praise and worship. Let's read this out of uh, Matthew chapter 21. So the disciples brought the donkey and the colt. I believe we have a couple colts. I'm not sure if we have a donkey over in the children's ministry right now because if Pastor Will is going to do something, a petting zoo is coming with him. And so he's, he's ministering over there uh, this morning. And uh, just one of the ways that we as a family say um, we all, as leaders, invest in our kids' ministry. Uh, but uh, back, back to the scripture here. The disciples uh, brought a donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, absolutely. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. What we see here from this passage of Scripture is that Jesus did not reject God's house. He loves it enough to overturn a few things and reset its priorities. But he does not reject the one he's married to. And whether you take this, amen, whether you take this personally as because you are the temple of God, each and every one of us is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, whether you apply this personally, that you are a house of the Father's presence, or we apply it corporately as we together are the temple of God, we are together the living stones which make up the, the, the house of God. We have to be willing to say to our Father, if there's a couple things in my life that need to be turned over, Please do so. How many of you would welcome God to disrupt your comfort zone so that you could be more a dwelling place of his presence? And I believe it is so important as a church family to say there's no sacred tables, there's no sacred cows if there's something that we've done or have started to do that is out now of alignment with the purpose and the plan of God, may the Holy Spirit come and flip that table over. He loves us enough to bring about change in our mindset, in our attitude, in our response, in our thoughts. And we have to welcome that process. Amen? But at the same time, he does not come to correct us with a rejection. He comes us to correct us, to reset our priorities so that we can be further an expression of his glory and his goodness intended through our life. Amen? So we welcome the discipline of the Lord. We welcome the correction of the Lord. But at the same time, we know his unfailing love is intended for our good. So we read here that Jesus comes in to the temple and drives out those who bought and sold in the temple. And specifically, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Why is that detail important at that time? Look at this graphic of the temple here. And you can see there that uh, at the very heart of the temple is uh, number one there at the top is the sacred area of the Holy of Holies. And only the priests could enter that area. Then you have a... a courtyard in front of that area uh, immediately and the the men of Israel could enter that area then you have a, a broader walled courtyard there in which women who were uh, Jews could enter that area aren't you thank 
thankful that he has become our peace and he's broken down every wall of division and we all can enter into the holy place. But that's another sermon. Then outside the main temple precinct was the Gentile courtyard on both sides, a large space there where those that had come from other nations could come and actually worship and offer sacrifices and try to connect to the true God of Israel. Now, because they had come from foreign areas, um, you could only buy clean animals to sacrifice using a currency that was local and considered um, uh, uh, acceptable for that. So there were money changers all along the way uh, to exchange foreign currency for uh, the Jewish currency. I think it's a Tyranian silver or something like that, that they considered holy enough to purchase an animal for sacrifice. And so how many of you have ever paid like $25 for a, a thing of popcorn at the movies? You know, or, or you paid uh, $9.50 for a hot dog at Dodger Stadium. You know, th there, there is something about a concession stand in which you make a concession to all logic for the convenience of being able to stay in proximity to the event. You can imagine that all over the exterior of the Temple Mount, not inside the temple, but in exterior, there were shops and booths because there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims coming from all sorts of nations. And as the closer you got to the temple, the steeper the exchange rate got, the more expensive things became. Because you sort of were at their mercy. You had just traveled two months to get there. Are you going to really argue the exchange rate when you're 25 feet away from the entrance? So there was already a big openness to extortion there. Further, when it, Jesus, it mentions here specifically those that stole doves, doves were the least expensive acceptable sacrifice to offer in the temple. It was really the sacrifice of the poor. And Jesus not only overturns the tables of the money changers and those that sold doves, he did so specifically because they were not only around the temple, but it says here they were in the temple. In the very worship space, the Gentiles' courtyard, in which those that had come to seek the true God of Israel were supposed to have space to worship, it was crowded out now with stalls to make money and to take advantage of the poor. And Jesus said, this is not right. You have elevated money and commerce above the needs of people to find Jesus uh, or to find God and the needs of the poor. Now, Jesus teaches about money or uses money as an illustration a lot in his teaching. Some would say he addresses money or uses money as an image more than any other topic in his teaching. He talks about generosity. He talks about greed. He talks about anxiety over money. He talks about worshiping money as your God. He addresses money frequently. And my struggle as a pastor, and also because I'm just a proud human being on the side, is to actually talk to us as a church about money as much as Jesus talks about money. 
for both Pastor Will and myself, it's like our least favorite topic to address, but we address it from time to time to mature the body of Christ. Because Jesus said so clearly, where your treasure is, there's your heart going to be also. And so we address it that way. But at the same time, we're also so aware that the church has been such a place of financial abuse, where those who are the poorest have been, have been told to give in such a sacrificial way to only fuel the private jet of some superstar speaker. We know this is wrong. But in our own lives, sometimes our focus on money and our desire to find some sort of security, as though money could give you security, our desire to acquire more comfort or greater experiences in life, it can cloud for us our focus on sharing the gospel with other people and of ministering to the needs of the poor. And God will come into our lives and overturn that table a bit and say, what do you want to be? Do you really want to be different than the culture of your times? Do you want to be the Father's house? If so, money's become a little too important to you. And the same can be within a local church, is that the focus on money, the focus on the budget, the focus on whatever we need, think we need, can become more important. And what Jesus says Money has its place, but money cannot replace prayer in a church. And I believe God is calling us at this time to return our focus to being a house of prayer. See, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah and from Jeremiah when he gives uh, this correction. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7 makes that specific. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. It's not only a house for you to intercede in, it's a house for those who don't even know my name yet to come towards, they're attracted towards some sort of life, some sort of hope in your community, and they come to seek the true and living God in prayer. But Jesus says, in contrast to being a place of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. And in Jeremiah 7, 11, that phrase is used there to describe worshipers who are entering the temple of that time, and they're focused on religious obligation, but their hearts are far away from the worship of the true God. And God, Jesus is making that correction there. It's not about the external form of the temple. It's about the attitude of your heart and the priority of this place is that it would be a place of prayer. I am 100% for being as excellent as possible with our human talents, our God-given capacities, and our skills. I believe in a pursuit of excellence in our life. I know you do too, amen? But this is what we know as the people of God, is what our world really needs is beyond the capacity of human talent, of human creativity, of human ability. We need even now on earth. And there's no amount of human work that can substitute for the simple prayer of faith that says, yes, I'm moved to prayer by the needs of the world, but I'm even more moved to prayer by the goodness of God. That I see your heart of generosity. I see your willingness to help. And I hear your invitation to partner. And so make me, Lord, a house of prayer. Right now, we're in a time of stress. 
that'll make you pray, right? But even more that, that we're, than that, we're in a time of urgent invitation where God is saying, I've made the way for you to enter the holy place by the blood of the Lamb, a new and living way. Won't you come today? And I believe here at the garden, God is resetting our priorities so that prayer is the most important practice in our lives. I'm all for there being a prayer room on the garden campus. I'm all for there being some who pray in prayer groups at the garden. But I tell you, church family, from my heart, God is not simply wanting a prayer room. He's wanting a house, an entire house of prayer, where every stone in that house, every brick in that building is a place of prayer and intercession that we would all, more than ever, be those whose lives are centered around calling on the God of heaven to bring heaven to earth. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done now. Prayer releases peace. How many of you could use a little more peace? You're saying, I need some peace. The pastor's yelling at me this morning. How many of us could use more provision from heaven, whether that's financial or just emotional strength or clarity in our wisdom? How many of us could use power? We have friends right now in the church family who need an invasion of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in their life. May we be a family that continually prays and intercedes, knowing that there is a God in heaven who hears and who answers prayer. The next reset for Jesus was that he said, this is a place of healing. So going on to the next verse, it says, and, and the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. That's a wonderful thing, right? The blind and the lame were the most characteristic, incurable disease of Jesus' time. But they came to Jesus, and he healed them. The radical thing about the fact that they were in the temple is that they normally were barred from the temple. So in the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, where it describes the priesthood, it specifically excludes those that were blind and lame from being in the priesthood. And when David built his palace in uh, 2 Samuel 5, 8, he says, the blind and the lame shall not enter into the king's palace. In the time of Jesus, it's thought that because of the, the mats that the sick laid on and the crutches of the lame, uh, that they were uh, outside of the sacred space of the temple, that if they were brought into the temple, they would create impurity in the temple. And so the blind and the lame were excluded from coming into the temple. That's why when we read about them a lot in the New Testament, they're always at the gate, right? They're on the outside looking in. And there were even some Jewish groups like the Essenes who lived around the Dead Sea area who barred them even from fellowship among the people of God. But when Messiah comes to his temple and the new covenant is present, those with physical and mental illness and those broken by life, they find hope 
and they find a welcome in the house of God. And I don't know what it is about the presence of Jesus that is the presence of hope, but as he enters the temple and he starts to reset its priorities, all the blind and the lame that are excluded and are on the outside and crowding the gates, they push past all the security and they, they come into the temple and Jesus heals them. Garden family, we must make healing a greater priority than ever before. Amen. Amen. And I will tell you honestly, it would be much easier to grow a crowd of a church if we only focused on comfort and caring for the sick and did not raise the hope of physical healing. Because we see in a mirror dimly, we experience in part, and we do see some healing, but there are tons of heartbreaking unanswered questions about the area of healing. But to me, if we are a church based on the living word of God, we have no option except to, to pursue the things that Jesus commanded us to do. And he said, heal the sick and set people free. And I don't think he changed the dispensation to change the, the direction to our lives. And so no matter how heartbreaking it may be, I believe that we must contend for healing in the house of God. We must make healing a greater priority because that's the type of church Jesus says, well, that's to die for. The final element of resetting. It says, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and their children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. We've got children crying out. It's not in the order of service. It's so disruptive. We have adult things to do in this adult meeting. And Jesus said, so you biblical scholars, have you not read? It's out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants that you have perfected praise. This moment in the temple is not only about you. This life in this temple is about the generation yet to come. And is this a place in which the youth and the children have such a living encounter with the goodness of God? Have come into a living relationship, not just the structure of religion, that out of their mouths comes an innocent cry of praise and gratitude towards the living God. Pastor Will pointed out this, this scripture in Psalm 102 a few weeks ago. Let this, and in Psalm 102, this is the record of answered prayer previously in Israel. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people 
yet to be created may praise the Lord. The legacy of answered prayer in our life is part of what builds a platform of praise for our youth and for our children to give to God a praise that's perfected in their generation at even a higher level than ours, a higher measure only by grace, a higher measure of complete devotion and adoration. Do you desire to see that in your children? Do you desire to see that in our young people? See, our investment in our children and in future generations must be a priority for the entire garden. It's not just a department within the church. It's all of our urgency. It's all of our effort. And that's not only to provide them the best place and programs. Yes, we want to build them an amazing children's building. We want to empower and be part of amazing children's programs. But it's got to be a place that the programming introduces our children to the resurrection power of God. And when Jesus took his place in the Father's house, the children, seeing the wonders and the goodness of God, broke out in a way that fulfilled the desire for God to bring forth perfected praise in his people. Will we share the same commitment as a church family? See, when we talk about let's go together and and the expansion of our campus, and we talk about it being a place for children and young people, I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, we're not just marketing you. We're not just trying to find a way to pull on your heartstrings. What we are saying is that this is the priority of the one who lives in the house, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he resets the priorities, he often draws our attention away from only our current well-being to the generations yet to come. And he says, let's be a part of seeing his praise go from generation to generation to generation. Pastor Amanda said this last week. She said, to reset, to reach the next generation, it's, going, it's not going to take a superficial Christianity. It's going to take a supernatural Christianity. I'm all for the bells and whistles and for whatever we can do to make that first entryway of appeal. But in the end, what will keep our kids and what will drive them to zeal, devotion, and a lifelong following of Christ is not anything in toys and decorations and blah. There's a place for it all. I'm not anti-birthday parties. <laughs> but what I do want is something that lasts beyond sixth grade, something that lasts beyond eighth grade, something that lasts beyond high school, something that lasts through the rigors of college intellectual strength. And that is going to be a supernatural Christianity. There is no supernatural Christianity without a house of prayer and a house of healing. And so that's what we must yield ourselves to and continually say yes to. I was so struck by this phrase here that I actually text, texted Pastor Amanda and said, were you quoting that someone else or did you make that up yourself? 
And she said, no, God spoke that to my heart prophetically a couple years ago. I believe it's absolutely the word of God for this hour. Perfected praise in the next generation. See, in the end, we want to realize that Jesus did not only die for the salvation of individuals. He died to create the bride, the church. This is what it says in, in, in Ephesians. It says um, that, that Christ Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So the, moving the division between Jew and Gentile, so making peace, and might, be, might reconcile us both to God in one body. That is the church. But that body is made through the cross. Jesus walked into the temple and it was a mess. But he said that there is a house of God to die for. And I'm going to die for that house because it's going to be a place of prayer. And it's going to be a place of healing. And it's going to be a place of generational praise to the true and living God. And so he is resetting our priorities here. As individuals and as a church, we are a house of prayer. We are a house of healing for the sick and the broken. We are a home for children offering praise and worship. We are becoming more and more the church that Jesus died for. Amen? And let's all, whether both as individuals and as a family, let's Focus on resetting our priorities on these three things. Number one, increase in believing prayer. You know, I pray that we shift from our anxiety being this much and our prayer being this much to our anxiety being this much and our prayer being this much. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and intercession, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. May he shift us more and more into a devotion to a, a, a prayer of faith that releases God's supernatural power. Secondly, let's have a renewed pursuit for healing of our bodies, our hearts, and our minds. And we're right now refocusing as a leadership team. We're calling together people who have leadership and a calling to help us um, continue a culture of praying for the sick. And, and you'll see changes ahead as we yield time um, uh, at the end of worship to doing more prayer for healing. Uh, this is a shift our entire leadership field. God is saying this is the year in which we're going to focus more than ever on seeing physical healing come. We used to be a place in which there were many people gifted in inner healing and restoring the broken heart. We need to revive that culture and see a new generation, amen, rise with that spirit-led ability to mend up the broken heart inside. And finally, we need to be a church that continues to be Look not just to our own well-being, but to invest in the next generation. Many of you are doing that by serving in our kids' ministry, serving with our youth. We're doing this as a family by investing in expanding our campus. But it's got to be an attitude of heart that always says, how's the praise sound coming from the children's building? How's the praise coming from our worship, uh, from our, our youth team? Uh, are they learning the joy of the presence of God together? So would you bow your head in prayer for me, with me? Heavenly Father, we just receive your word. Right now, Lord, we are so thankful that you've made yourself one with us. That's a mystery. Lord, 
We're so aware of our humanity, Lord. We're so aware of areas that need growth and improvement, but yet you fully identify yourself with us, your bride. Thank you so much. So, Father, we're asking for a divine reset in our life, Father, that we would more than ever be a house of prayer, both as individuals, Lord, and as a church. Father, that we would be a place of verifiable physical healings, Lord. More and more, we would pursue you in faith, give you opportunities. And, Father, we pray a blessing on our next generation, on our youth and on our children, that they would know you in your grace, in your love, in your goodness, in your truth, Lord, and they would live lives of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.